Welcome to Happily Ever After, the podcast that talks about the mysterious world of divorce and uncoupling and living happily ever after heartbreak. I'm your host, Hannah Harvey. I'm a writer and an award-winning blogger at mumsdays.com. That's M-U-M-S-D-A-Y-S dot com. It would make my day if you could subscribe and leave a review so more people can find this podcast. I would also love to hear from you, so contact me through Instagram at Mumsdays with your stories of divorce and heartbreak, any thoughts that you might have on the episode or even questions you may want answering. You can find all the details from this episode in the show notes. Hello and welcome to Happily Ever After. This is Hannah and today I'm talking to Sean Alexander who's the author of Sober on a Drunk Planet. So I quit drinking myself about five years ago, um, almost to the day. Uh, So I wanted to speak to Sean almost as a sort of celebration of this anniversary but also because I'm now fascinated by the subject of addiction Um, and in particular how it can impact on relationships. Um, But before we get on to relationships and addiction, Sean, hello. Hi. Would you mind giving a little bit of background about your drinking and drugs and how you've ended up writing this book? Yeah, um, I'll try and give the short version. Uh, (laughs) Addicts are quite... Yeah, I know for talking about their past quite well. Um, yeah, so I was born and raised in Wimbledon in uh, southwest London, where the tennis is easiest place for people to remember it. Um, privileged upbringing, no council, state, or any sort of uh, known trauma. Like mum and dad were amazing. Uh, went to a good school, went to university up in Nottingham, lived up there for three years. Um, and then didn't get into drugs till after I left uni. So I then started working in a pub. When you work in a pub, especially in South London, uh, drugs and drink are as easy to get as, as one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so the pub I used to work in, probably have five or six dealers that would <laughs> work from there, uh, out from there every day. Um, and it was just part and parcel of life. I'm 36 years old now, so when I was there, it was so easily accessible. Um, but I was, it started off as once a month, once a week, twice a week, during the week. And then before I knew it, I was in rehab at the age of 31. Um, worked in finance, I was a qualified financial advisor, um, qualified pensions advisor. So had a house. Very close to having a wife to be as well. Sort of a bit of a car crash addiction. I gambled all my money away, um, and yeah, sold my house to pay off the debts, and then did exactly the same thing again, just with a lot more money. Um, but luckily, losing all the money was the thing that actually was the catalyst for me getting help. Um, sort of the prospect of being homeless. <laughs> sort of got me into rehab and it was a bit of a strange thing I was working as an investment consultant earning a good salary but my lifestyle would just was crazy um loads of drugs every day drinking just 
not doing all the things that I learned doing my financial advice uh, qualifications. And then, yeah, so I'd, I'd run out of money. I couldn't even afford to get into work. Um, all my credit cards were completely maxed out. Gambling was a problem again. Um, and then all I had was a private medical policy with work at the time um, that got me a 28-day stay at rehab. And then that luckily was the turning point, really. Like I, I went to rehab because I needed an excuse to say that I wasn't, I didn't have any money. Mm. But actually, I, I knew deep down when I walked into that room in rehab with loads of other strange-looking people all lost, um, I felt very at home. So, yeah, I, I went to rehab the Priory in London. It, it, it was like the top care you could get. So I was very fortunate. Um, but a lot of people come out of it and they relapse. I think it's like a 95% relapse rate. Um, but I'd already gone through years of trying to quit, telling people I had a problem, sort of one car crash after another, loads of things going wrong. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of the penny dropped when I was in rehab. We spoke about my drinking habits. I've never contemplated drinking was a problem because I drank like everyone else from university. You'd black out. You wouldn't remember things. You'd wake up and be sick everywhere. Um, and it was that sort of normality with the people that I was drinking with. It didn't. It never felt like it was a problem. But actually, when you go to rehab and they look at your pattern of drinking and the behaviour associated with it, it's very obvious that, I had an addiction with alcohol. It might not be your stereotypical one where you're drinking two bottles of wine in the morning to function. I, I wasn't a, I wasn't a functioning alcoholic. I was a binge drinker. Um, I'd go out Thursday to Sunday and just drink and drug until I got to Sunday, and then I'd sleep for about fourteen hours before going to work on Monday, and lived in that same repeatable nightmare for best part of 17 years like when when you're younger you sort of get away with it a bit more because your your liver's better to detoxify itself and the hangovers don't last all week but i think i don't know if you found with age hangovers seem to uh, drag on all week definitely um it's funny because i think for me, I people will often be like, oh, you just drank the same amount I did, or I do. Um, but I felt like I had a problem. So I wasn't doing what you were doing necessarily and um, adding drugs into the mix, but there was definitely this underlying requirement to drink almost. Um, I think you touch upon it lots in the book and it's that kind of feeling of something's not quite right and you're trying to fill a void. But my point is that there's lots of different levels that you don't have to have been going out every single night of the week um, and like you say, getting up and drinking all day. It can be as simple as you're thinking about it a bit too much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I think that's when I was at rehab, one, one person's problem with alcohol was completely different to someone else's. I mean, it, it's the same principle that you, you use alcohol, which is a drug. Like, to me, there's no difference between me snorting a line of cocaine or drinking too many pints. 
drinking too many pints inevitably got me arrested a few times, whereas snorting cocaine didn't. So I actually think alcohol is worse than the other drugs. Um, but equally, they're, they're, they're all they're all pretty bad. Um, but it's, it's such a yeah, it's such a spectrum of is it just a bad habit? And then I think that it was like the perfect storm of things going wrong. And then you sort of drink a bit more often. And then I was drinking every day and doing drugs every day because that that was my coping mechanism. Um, so filling that void where I didn't want to face up to the fact that my life was completely spiraling out of control. Um, being a typical bloke, I didn't have that emotional intelligence to ask for help or, or even know what was wrong. Um, it's that whole thing of if someone says, oh, how are you? And I would just say, oh, I'm fine. But deep down, there, there were a lot of things going wrong. But sort of adulting and not wanting people to see that you're struggling was just a big problem of mine. So I just kept everything quiet until <laughs> eventually I, I managed to spend an awful lot of money in uh, about 10 years all in all. Um, and then, yeah, all the gambling and stuff escalates. And gambling is quite dangerous because a lot of people don't realise you can talk about alcohol and drug addiction, but gambling addiction can completely destroy you in a matter of, matter of an hour. Mm. Um, drinking and drugging, yeah, you can overdose, but there, there's a bit of a bigger lead up to getting to that point. Whereas gambling is so rife and so accepted in society that it's... It's a lot more obvious. I know you've got pubs and you've got shops you can buy alcohol, but you, you almost don't have that level of advertising um, or association with sports. It, it's, it's definitely more of a male thing. Um, mm. I think I've, I've personally not met many female um, females in sort of Gamblers Anonymous or anything, but I'm sure there, there's more with the sort of daytime betting with all these bingo things that really annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> the foxy like, bingo and stuff yeah, like that much more of a thing i think they've spotted a gap in the market and they're like how can we get women in on this as well and yeah. it's the going to do bingo i personally don't get it but i can understand what it is about it that people like um yeah it's really interesting so <laughs> The thing I wanted to talk to you about is the fact that I guess it's for the person who isn't the addict. So you mentioned in the book and specifically relationship section about how if you quit, what happens with your partner um, can go one of two ways. So one is they quit too and because they're not really that big a drinker and it's not a bigger deal or they just want to or they don't, and it can become an issue. Um, and what's coming up quite a lot in the community that um, we have here is people talking about um, their partner's drinking or drug taking or other addiction, gambling, people do talk about that too, um, and how much of a negative impact it's having on the relationship. Um, to the point where they feel they have to leave. And I know it's like a really common issue within relationships. I don't know whether it's like an age thing or just because we grew up just drinking. I worked at the university and everywhere we went, there, were, there was free booze. 
you know, if you go to a conference, it's like, oh, you plan where you're going to go at a conference based on where the free booze is going to be. Um, so I don't know if it's just because we've grown up doing it and you just get used to drinking a lot, but. Yeah, it, it, I, it definitely it is a societal thing. Um, I grew up with my, my mum doesn't really drink, but my dad was part of a rugby society, um, played rugby, and they all drink. All their partners drink. So all the guys and all the friends that I grew up with all drink. You go to university, and if you don't drink at university, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty alien. And then the corporate world is the worst. Um, everything I did in the finance industry was drinks-related. There, there, there wasn't yeah. anything. I think I did a crystal maze thing once in the 13, 14 years I worked in the finance industry. Um, but all the other events were drink related and drink inevitably leads on to um, lower inhibitions which makes gambling worse which makes drugs like literally one pint two pints and you you call your dealer you get home you're wide awake and then you gamble um, I think they, they all they're more intrinsically linked um, than people would normally think I think if you cut out drinking then at least you're giving yourself half a chance of trying to stop the other addictions as well. Yes. Oh my God. I was going to, I'll talk about that later about um, when I left my ex and how grateful I am that I don't drink. <laughs> but um, So going back to the relationship thing, it feels like for a lot of people, it's really taboo. Like they're really struggling with this thing, but they can't, they've got no one to talk to. Um, and it's like a dirty secret within the relationship that just becomes utterly toxic. Um, do were you in a relationship when you were drinking, and do you have some like, experience of that kind of? Yeah, it was. It has. It is, is, is from my perspective, so it's obviously going to be a bit different, and it's it's strange because I never really had any sort of closure or anything with the girlfriend at the time. Um, but we we were sort of at that point, we moved in together. Everyone was thinking that we were going to get married, do that usual two kids and live like everyone else expects you to. Um, but I, I guess I wasn't happy in the relationship because I wouldn't have turned to drinking drugs if I was happy. Um, so I told her that I was a coke addict. She didn't really have a clue. I was doing coke um, every day in the toilet, blamed on IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. That's why I was always in the loo. Um, and then when I told her, she was shocked. She made me ring my dad. My dad was pissed off. Um, and then she just left. I mean, she just didn't even try or anything. And there, there was definitely some resentment from me. But I was so numb to everything because my life had literally spiralled out of control by that point. That she she made the right decision. I mean, you, you see it all the time, even when I was counselling clients as well. You get people that enable something. So I guess to some extent it's codependency. Even if you know deep down that you don't necessarily like the person in the relationship and you not it doesn't always have to be that strong a feeling. It could be you know that that person isn't the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. But you can both tolerate each other. And the thought of splitting up and being single and all that is too much. So I think you stick to it, even though you're not particularly happy. But then that sort of fuels the drinking and the drugging as well. 
Um, and I think that for me, that was a side effect of it. Um, but because I was emotionally redundant, I didn't really know how to convey it. So I kept turning to drinking drugs instead, um, which obviously is not the solution to trying to work through relationship problems. Um, but I, I see it all the time. Like I used to grow up with a lot of builders, a lot of manual labourers, and that emotional intelligence is never passed down through the male <laughs> generations. You, you, you don't have men talking openly about relationship problems and how to overcome them. You just have men saying, let's go to the pub and get fucked and let's forget about it. And that, that's generally how we, we used to regulate our emotions was down the pub. <laughs> and do the guys of going for one? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was I was never friends with a guy that just went for one, not one. <laughs> I didn't know they existed until I. Quit. I don't think they do. They do <laughs> well. Really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I don't understand it, but I think so. Do you think if your girlfriend had said, "Let's get you some help." go to rehab or some kind of couples therapy that at that point it, you would have heard what she had to say or would have been open to the idea? Yeah, we, it's difficult. I think everything in life pans out how it should do. But I think um, to go from not trying anything to just leaving, I yeah. still think that was probably, um, especially when, we were apparently in love. I, knowing what I know now, I would not leave my other half if they went through a bit of a wobble. I'd, I'd like to know that I knew the signs were there beforehand. But I think, yeah, if if you really do like the other person, then you, you should go through the motions of trying. Um, because at worst case scenario, you'll come out of the therapy sessions, whether it's joint or individual or both, and you'll get a load of insight um, into how you operate and how your your part in it as well. Sometimes it gives a bit of closure, um, and sometimes it gives you the clarity you need to make the decisions. Mm. One person in particular I'm thinking of felt like they had done everything they can, and you know, it's like a circle. So the, you know, your partner might quit for a little while and then something happens and it starts again. Um, and you do the therapy, you do the couples therapy. And it, it, I guess it's the time when you go, nothing that we're doing and nothing that we're trying to do here is working. So I need to leave. Um, and I think it's that you can really be a, the enabler for absolutely years if you want to under the guise that the other person feels that you should, if you're in love, you should keep putting up with their behavior. Um, and it's, I think a lot of people feel guilty for then choosing to leave because they're like, I feel like I've tried everything and nothing is working. Um, and I guess it's almost like you have to give yourself permission to say this person's not going to change while I'm around. Do, do, do you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, like, definitely. Have you, 
seen much of that where you feel like people have really really tried but you know yeah I, I was counseling when I was counseling um some clients about a year ago that it, it was family family were enabling their behaviors through money so it, it works in different ways so you could be enabling your other half by staying with them or you can be enabling them um if they're a relative by giving them money and they're telling you all these white lies um and it, it's difficult because at the end of the day we we don't like doing things that are uncomfortable i mean that the whole human nature is to do things that are comfortable um a whole body is system to stay in that comfort zone um so when you have to go through those and make those decisions i think logically it makes more sense if you go through the motions of doing all the therapy trying and then trying and then getting to that point where you think that i've got nothing more to give like the relationships dead um that person's that's that person's life at the end of the day as selfish as as it feels like um sometimes that could be the making of the other person so like for me personally when she left it was a bit of pill to swallow but I had to realize that all my problems were my problems um and until I finally got the help that I needed and I wanted to get help no one was going to change me um because you get you get fixes in relationships as well mm. so she the, the girlfriend at the time obviously wasn't a fixer she she was the polar opposite um but sometimes if you get fixes they'll keep thinking they'll change for me they'll change for me but over time, I think you'll realise that they won't. Um, and you've been wasting time, whether it's wasting time or whether it's just that time you need to realise, actually, that is it is what it is. Um, I know some people stay in relationships for almost their entire lives and they're not happy. Um, so it really is a, a spectrum of at what point do you leave? And to what extent do people tolerate not being happy as well? I've seen it so many times. People are unhappy, but they won't leave. It's, it's a bit of a like codependency is another addiction. It's exactly the same as drinking too much alcohol. You've got too much dependence on one person; it becomes toxic. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I think you know, five years into my journey, and I'm like, it wasn't just about booze. That was a big thing that I leaned on. But, you know, I could say the same for sugar. And um, and I do think codependency. So when I left my ex, it was almost worse for me than quitting alcohol. Because um, with drinking, I just woke up one day and went, this is not working for me. Like we were trying for another baby or thinking about it anyway. And I was trying to cut down and I was like, why can I not cut down? And it's because I can't just have one. And I'm the kind of person that finds it easier just to say no than to say maybe. So that was that. I just stopped. But with my ex, I do think I was addicted to sort of him and the whole external validation of being in that relationship, like having the nice house, having the nice life having the holidays, having the kids, like everything fitted really nicely. And 
coming out of that was like this ridiculous emotional roller coaster. And I made some really terrible decisions, even when I, I was sober. So I'm just so grateful that I wasn't drinking. <laughs> yeah, it is, it's interesting because what what you allude to is societal conditioning and it was exactly the same point that I got to. Like I'm half Italian, half Irish. So family is very much be successful, have children, stay married your whole life. Um, but that doesn't fit everyone. And I think I was always fighting against that. Um, and then I just realised that I was really unhappy in that position where everyone else was telling me, oh, you're doing so well, you've got everything. But at the end of the day, if you're not happy, you, you sort of know that deep down. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, we, we're all brought up thinking that that's how people view us as successful. But the truth is, I, I've been the happiest I've ever been when I was on benefits because one of my businesses, after I got sober and left the finance world, um, got hit by COVID. It was a travel business that I'd set up. So I then had to do everything on a shoestring budget for a couple of years um, while I was doing some other work as well. And it just showed me that you don't need to have all those things in your life to be happy. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, less less is more. <laughs> so I'm more comfortable just with a book and being on my own um, and with the puppy and the missus than needing to go out and validate with other people saying, talking about how the book's doing and stuff. I just like my little introverted life now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. The, I mean, we're coming up to October and um, sober October and all that kind of stuff. Would you mind ending on kind of some tips for sober curious people? And if you want to, moving into sober dating, because um, I feel like when you're going through the roller coaster of ending a relationship, for me, it's not a bad idea to just stop drinking for a while. Um, but obviously, that brings its own. Um, I guess something to be nervous about, you know, being sober and then going out to meet people is pretty scary. It is scary, but I think it's. It, I think once you tackle that, then everything else in life becomes pretty easy. Um, I think that for me was where I went from being this scared boy to then becoming a bit more of a man who was confident in what he didn't want, um, not necessarily what he wanted. Mm. Um, but yeah, so in terms of sober dating, I, I've, strange enough, through doing the 12 step program, I, I learned a lot. And I think a lot of it was centered around the fact that if you're not happy in yourself, that radiates. So if you're going dating and you're not really happy or you're not confident in certain areas, then that codependency can really really kick up and you're mm. you're just looking for validation from people if they don't text you straight away you're worrying about this that and everything else that they might not like you mm. um but i think with modern dating you can filter out all those before you even get to the date um 
I went through a process of going. I got. I think I got addicted to dating, but that that's just my personality. I am very all or nothing. Um, yeah. And it did. It did feel towards the end of it like I completely burnt out, and it was a bit soulless. But you you understand what it is you do want. And I think after dating for about a year, I realised that I didn't want to date someone that drank. So then on my profile, I was just like, right, I know what I want. I want this. I want someone who's into spirituality a bit, who's a bit different. They're not your usual rat race lifestyle. They're working in sort of a corporate company and they work Monday to Friday and they do all that. So I just put exactly what I wanted on Hinge. Um, and then it's sort of that manifestation of what you want if you don't put it out there then you're not going to get it so yeah and then ended up meeting my my missus um we've been together a year and a half but it's it's just a case of uh, i mean at the end of the day it is a numbers game (laughs) i mean (laughs) like you 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 can't you, you can't get too caught up in the fairy tales of it i mean there's times when me and the missus have arguments and we don't talk to each other for 10 minutes or whatever. And it's not, I think my realisation of what being in a relationship is, is different to when I was in, in one originally. Um, and we're a lot, lot better at talking to each other. So if something does annoy us or we think there's um, something coming up, then we'll have a proper grown up chat about stuff. And that is so much better than my previous relationships where I would just shut down emotionally mm-hmm. and not talk about it. Then you're walking around with all these thoughts and stuff in your head as well. Um, Guessing what the other person's thinking. Yeah, and it's, 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 so, it's such a negative way to be in a relationship. Um, like communication really is key. Um, but with the dating side of it, like dating is fun. At the end of the day, like there were some terrible dates there were some exciting dates and there were some just really boring dates. But <laughs> I think if you go into the mindset of thinking, look, I, I'm doing this because I want to meet someone or you're doing it for whatever reasons, um, it's good. And you're doing it without having to reach for drinks as well. So you sort of know that you're going in there as a person that that person is going to meet every time. Um yeah. Where, where when I was drinking, I was a completely different person when I was drunk Depending to how I am sober. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's probably why I was single for the best part of 10 years when I was drinking. Mm. And if someone wants to give not drinking a try for a little while, what would your tips be for that? I think accountability so from the personal training stuff that i've done i think when people buy into a package it it doesn't have to be an expensive one it could just be an online course or one of the journals that's the 30-day journal for 5.99 or whatever um just give yourself that end goal and something that can keep you accountable along the way um Mm. because accountability is really powerful coaching um tool that people use and i think if you do potentially do things in group settings as well there's an extra layer of accountability with other people Um, there's plenty of sober courses out there for people um just find one that you like Mm -hmm. um yeah i think 
courses are the best way of doing it. Courses in those um, 30 day journals, 90 day journals, um, because accountability really is key. I think I know from experience when you just say, oh, I'm going to be sober for 30 days. But all your lifestyle and all your friends still drink weekend to weekend. It's not really going to happen. You need to build in um, that accountability for it to stick. And then inevitably, I've not met anyone who regrets going sober. So it's literally one of those life changing things that if you really want to change every area of your life, then for the better, then quitting alcohol will do it from the physical to the mental side of things. I mean, like you, you'll know as well, it is bonkers how much you can change. And then you get all the nice benefits as well. You look younger, you feel younger. Um, with all that extra energy and stuff, it, it, it's really motivating. Definitely. Um, I literally don't know how I did it, actually, now that you're saying this. I'm like... It must have been something, some other bigger reason that I needed to quit, but I definitely don't ever regret it. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's massively helped my confidence in general. I think once you've worked out how to step into a room, um, a party, a wedding, anything like that without drinking, it's like it becomes your superpower. You're like, yeah, I've already arrived, ready to hit the dance floor. I'm just yeah. going to wait for all you guys to catch up. <laughs> yeah, and pe people are like, oh, you're not drinking. Hmm, strange. <laughs> oh my God, and the conversation with family members is always hilarious. Yeah. You it, mentioned it's... your gran in the book, and yes. my granddad recently turned 90, and he was like, he must have asked me five to six times on his birthday party, if I wanted a drink and then each time he'd be like oh yeah that's right you don't drink do you and then in the morning he was like are you hung over then <laughs> yeah like, no granddad <laughs> of course yeah it's funny a lot my, yeah my, my nonna is exactly the same she's a proper Italian nonna as well she's 96 years old and she just can't understand how I don't drink and like your uh, granddad she just asked me about 10 times <laughs> and I'm like no I'm still not going to drink Still don't want one. No. Yeah, it's just such a, um, yeah, they just grew up with it and it feels really odd, I think. And I do think my family didn't like the fact that it means you might have a problem. Um, like, why can't you just have one? And I'm like, it's just better for everybody if I don't. Uh, to, to some extent, it is, it's like a mirror. So you're, you're not drinking makes someone like the, the uncomfortable questions start kicking in for family and friends as well. They'll, they'll start asking those questions that they've never asked. When you're in a group of family and friends that have always drunk together, no one ever asks, oh, I think you're drinking too much. Like mm -hmm. people normalise it. Oh, you got really drunk last night. You were hilarious. You throwing up and making an idiot out of yourself take that out of context it's actually not fun it's not hilarious and you're in a world of pain but because you're in a group of people that normalize it it's different so when you've got one black sheep that suddenly stops drinking then the questions start hitting in 
and sometimes it can bring up quite uncomfortable things for people um but in true style they'll just ignore them but i don't know have you got anyone in your family that you might think oh i think they drink too much <laughs> no comment doesn't <laughs> <laughs> everybody yeah uh yeah i just not a fan of alcohol at all but um i'm happy for people who can have a have a couple still haven't met those <laughs> <laughs> exactly but yeah each when i first sat down to read your book i was like i got that feeling of oh, it's really exciting you know when you start you've just finished a series and then you realize your friends never watched it yeah it's that kind of <laughs> feeling of like oh There'll be some people out there who really would love to just quit. Um, and I think if they read your book, they'll get that like permission and see that there is there is a way of doing it where um, you can quit and not, I don't know, just life is much better. Um, so I wanted to, I'm going to link to that in the show notes so that people have got that um, available to them if they are interested. So, um, but overall, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. It's very interesting to hear, particularly on the relationship side from your perspective, um, what that can be like. So yeah, really, really cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Okay, have a great week and I'll see you next time for another episode of Happy Ever After with me, Hannah Harvey. I would be forever in your debt if you could leave a review and subscribe as this helps more people find our podcast. And of course, if you have a friend who might enjoy this episode, please do recommend they listen too. And for anything else, any thoughts on this episode or questions for further episodes, you can get in touch with me through either Instagram at mumsdays or via my website, hannaharvey.uk.